Podcast. I'm Keith Geryan, filling in as host one more time for the vacationing Sarah O'Donnell. It is August 14th, 2014, and we are calling this episode the O Captain, My Captain edition, partly in tribute to the sad passing of Robin Williams, but also because there are two political parties in Alberta that are now getting very close to deciding who they will be calling captain in the future. We will discuss the latest developments in those two leadership campaigns, chat about our embattled finance minister, Doug Horner, and look in on a new report about pollution in the oil sands region. Joining me in the newsroom studio today are three of our most esteemed panelists, provincial affairs reporter, Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. City columnist, Paula Simons. I'm so happy to have your esteem, Keith. (laughs) (laughs) And senior reporter, Sheila Pratt. Greetings, everyone. (laughs) Well, very nice to see all of you. The phrase, oh, captain, my captain, That's a line that's highlighted in the movie Dead Poet Society. It's a Robin Williams favorite of mine. And I chose it in part because I thought the Alberta Tories, the way that they're going right now, they may very well be able to start their own club called the Dead Politician Society, or very soon anyway. And you you have to think that maybe one of the first members is going to be Finance Minister Doug Horner. Horner has been under fire all week ever since that Auditor General's report implicated him in that whole scandal involving abuse of the government airplanes. But what's interesting to me is that the pressure on him is coming not just from the opposition, but also seemingly from people within his own party. Miriam, Horner wrote an interesting letter this week to his fellow PCMLAs. What did it say? So this is a letter that was leaked over the weekend. In it, he's basically defending his record following the AG report. And you'll remember we obviously talked about this last week, his sort of uh, refusal to take responsibility for the abuse of the planes. Of course, there were opposition calls for his resignation. And the Wild Rose went out and put out, uh, you know, five reasons Doug Horner must resign. And so this this email seemed to be really um motivated by that because he sort of picked the, the those five reasons and responded to them but basically said again that it's not his responsibility that he was following the policy as it's written now and that he's not going to be resigning even if there are calls uh, for his resignation coming from inside the Tory caucus which this this letter seemed to indicate and what I actually thought was really interesting too about this was that it didn't include Rick McIver or Thomas Lukasik on the distribution list they never mm. they never received this email and and also I thought it was interesting Interesting that uh, Doug Horner signs off by saying that he's going to continue to work to uh, get Prentice elected as the new leader of the PC party and premier of Alberta. So uh, it really, it seemed to me to be motivated by by all of the sort of questions that have been raised and swirling around him and his involvement in, in this scandal. Yeah, well, clearly he's he's feeling some pressure right now. But Paula and Sheila, I want to sort of get a sense of, of how this might play out for the next PC leader, whoever it is, because I got to think Doug Horner, he's not a guy that you just easily dismiss, do you? So so what do you do with a guy like Doug Horner? Well, I think in some ways Doug Horner has made it very easy for whomever comes next, because if he hadn't written this letter, then I think you're right. I mean, he's the northern power broker. He's a guy who was a you know a credible candidate for the leadership last time around, was doing some serious tire kicking to run for the leadership this time around. But that letter, which was garbled, quasi-illiterate, and made him look weak and whiny in some ways, gives whoever becomes the leader, and I think for the purpose of argument, we'll assume that's likely to be Jim Prentice, and a much easier way to ease Doug Horner out the door because, I mean, Horner has now made himself dead man walking. And Miriam's right. I mean, I initially in my own column referred to this as a letter to the Tory caucus. 
It isn't. It's a letter to the Jim Prentice supporters in the Tory caucus, which, oh, wait for it, is everybody except Rick McIver and Thomas <laughs> yes. Lukasik. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, what I hadn't really thought about when I wrote my column earlier this week is to what extent that letter is really an attempt to suck up and curry favor with Jim Prentice because it ends with the big Jim Prentice rah-rah, if I can do it, you can do it. But I think that Horner, with that letter, signed his own death warrant. Hmm. Well, I, you know, it's interesting that it, it, Paula makes some really good points there. I can also see for a man of his stature, his background in the party, he's been a very heavyweight, he's a real establishment figure, his father, as we all know, was a big man in politics. It must really sting to see him brought down by foibles of a premier. He tried to play a um, above-it-all role. And in, just in terms of sheer ministerial responsibility, that fell apart when the Auditor General says, you're the guy responsible. I mean, in, th- in theory then, for ministerial responsibility, you could expect him to resign, possibly. Not that anyone ever does that here. And I just think it must have really stung him personally to have his career end like this. So I think this is a bit of him lashing back and saying, I'm right. protecting myself. I'm not going down easily. You guys can try it, but it's not happening this way. It's very true that if Jim Prentice wants to take him down he is reaching into the Tory party it's going to be a little more problematic than his promise to get rid of Jeff Johnson who we assume won't be in cabinet even his I'm not even sure about people like Doug Griffiths these are not the heavyweights that Doug Horner is so if if you let him go it, there could be a little bit of cost but there's probably more to be gained by by letting him go so from Dead Poet Society to another Robin Williams title, Insomnia, because I suspect PC party officials are experiencing some sleeplessness this week after learning that their front-running candidate, Jim Prentice, is giving away memberships. Miriam, how is he defending this, and what are his rivals saying? The Prentice campaign initially denied this. They sent a, a spokesperson to, to deny the claims, saying that, no, you know, n- this isn't happening. But in fact, Jim Prentice came out himself in an interview uh, with our colleague Darcy Henton at the Herald and said that, yes, in fact, he is offering free memberships to people, uh, you know, paying for those memberships essentially for people, and that there's nothing about that that breaks any PC party rules and that he's not going to stop doing it. His his rivals uh, obviously are are making big political hay out of this because it's something pretty easy to make a big deal out of. Um, Rick McIver has said that this essentially amounts to Jim Prentice buying votes at ten dollars a pop. Thomas Lukasik, uh, for his part, said that while it may not be breaking any of the rules, it's certainly not following the spirit of the rules. Um, and the party's executive director Kelly Charlebois essentially said the same thing, saying that they're going to be sending some a letter to candidates encouraging them against this sort of practice, but admitting that there's nothing that they can do to stop it because there's nothing that explicitly uh, prevents that practice from going on during a campaign. Well, Paula, Sheila, what about that? Should the party be putting a stop to this? Is this sort of a normal part of a campaign or is this unusual? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there are always rumors that candidates are doing this. And, you know, the Prentice people are trying to spin this by saying, our candidate is being honest. This kind of thing goes on all the time. And we're the first people to admit it and, you know, be proud that we're doing it. It's a victory for democracy. Uh, You know, the PC party is very awkwardly situated. I mean, these are not free memberships. Someone has paying the PC party $10 a pop for these memberships. So if it's coming out of the money that Prentice has fundraised, technically that's not against the rules. They can't change the rules midway through, uh, they might want to give consideration to changing them next time, which might be difficult if the guy selling the memberships is, oh, wait for it, the leader of the party. Actually, I I think the Tories like loosey-goosey rules because anything 
can go then. <laughs> but I also I also think to say that this is normal in leadership campaigns is not the right argument this time around. If there's one issue floating around out there about the Tories, it's about entitlement, about breaking the rules, about not being straight. Right. And here they are, before he's even elected leader, he's messing with the rules, or at least messing with the spirit of the rules. So I, I, I think it's much more perilous to do this time, and I think his calm response of, well, I just want to be out front about it, I mean, that just signals a, another problem with... It, it, he's in keeping with the, the particular problems in the party right now, which is rules don't matter. We just need to get elected. That's right. Well, and even... It's even more subtle than, than rules don't matter. It, it's saying that, you know, I think Sheila's put her finger on it precisely. I think there's a mood in this province that says the old rules don't work anymore. People, I mean, people are, have looked at, at the last, you know, 43 years and thought, hmm, Maybe we need a different set of rules. Well, we had vague rules around airline government planes that weren't supposed to be used for party business, but they always were. I mean, those and they and the party, the government never changed those rules because they liked it to be vague and not certain. Yeah, and I, but I, but I think she was right. It's all part of a growing zeitgeist that is saying this is not the way Albertans want their politics done anymore. The old boy cronyism that has infected the progressive conservative party is, I think, less and less palatable to voters. And I think for Prentice to come out and position himself as the champion of democracy for buying people memberships and handing them to people is not ringing well with the public. Right, and if he's having to give them away, it also tends to indicate that no one wants to buy them right now. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it's not like $10 yeah. is a huge stumbling block to an investment of the democratic process. No, and it'll be vi- that's going to be one of the key figures to watch when this leadership plays out. Well, I'm sure if the candidates ever manage to get that televised debate, uh, this will be <laughs> one of the uh, hot topics that comes up. We'll see if that ever does happen or not. Um, But I want to move now from that leadership campaign to another because, of course, the Alberta NDP are about two months away from having Brian Mason step down. I don't really have a Robin Williams movie in mind here for the NDP, perhaps what dreams may come. Um, But, uh, Miriam, we got a little insight this week about how that NDP campaign is going when the candidates release some financial information. What can you tell us? Well, um Early on in, in this uh, process, the NDP, um, the party in the sort of setting the rules for the race said that they would disclose each month the amount of donations that come in for the candidates in the leadership race, anything over $100, which is uh, goes beyond what Elections Alberta requires. They require anything over $250 to be disclosed, but it doesn't have to be disclosed until four months after the conclusion of the race. The NDP is doing this proactively. So they made good on that promise and released uh, some of the donation figures um, for the three candidates. It will be no surprise to anyone that Rachel Notley is far and ahead the the leader in donations. She's already uh, received $52,770 in donations. They've got a $100,000 spending limit on this race as well, so she's already halfway there to, to raising the amount of money that she can even spend. David Egan, um, her her uh, rival in the race, is uh, also an MLA in Edmonton. Uh, he's only raised 15825 to her 52000 So uh, clearly in terms of popularity, I think, and in terms of the, the fundraising that she's brought in, uh, Rachel Notley is, is, as I said, it won't surprise anyone that she's obviously the leader in this race. 
the most interesting thing on the donation list is that the biggest donation contribution so far to each of the candidates, um, David and Rachel, who we have num- numbers for, came from the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 401, which gave the maximum $15,000 donation that can be given in a single donation. So David Egan has that donation and not much else is what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. No, not much else at all. Okay. Well, Paula um, and Sheila, uh, if the polls are to be believed, the NDP is surging right now in Edmonton. Uh, and yet, maybe this is just me, their campaign seems very, very quiet. What's going on? Well, partly we don't know very much because we're not, A, the media isn't covering it very much and it does seem to be pretty low-key. But, you know, on, on the other hand, the Tory leadership race is not having a ton of profile either except for when these scandals pop up or little mini scandals so it's summertime people aren't looking the NDP only has a handful of seats it's going to be hard to get attention it is interesting to me that Rachel Notley um, started her campaign in Calgary hoping to pick up some votes there I'm not sure how much uh, attention they're getting down there maybe they ought to propose televised debates and get there before the Tories can they afford a televised (laughs) debate (laughs) well it's interesting I I saw Rachel Notley at the folk festival this weekend she was you know working the crowds in a fairly subtle way Um, there were people wearing buttons that said ready for Rachel I didn't see any kind of David Egan signage at the folk fest and you'd think that would also be fertile campaign grounds for him. Um, I think part of it, though, is because they're such a small caucus, they're also trying to do the business of government, and they're trying to be very careful about it. For example, last week when all of the news was breaking about the flight logs and uh, and the Auditor General's report, it was Darren Billis who was out speaking for the party. He's the most junior member of the caucus because what I've been told is that Rachel Notley and David Egan have a kind of agreement that they're not going to hog the limelight and blur their roles as critics and their roles as candidates and Brian Mason was off vacationing in British Columbia I had to I had to work pretty hard to get them to put him on the phone for me to talk to Uh, so I think it's a challenge for them it's summer they're competing with the Tories for media attention and public attention. They're trying to do their work as as critics in the legislature. Um, I mean, Rachel Notley's big news last week was to put out a you know a very thoughtful press release about the uh, child and youth advocates report about a baby who died in a foster home that had nine children. Uh, you know, she put out a statement saying that she didn't think it should be so unreasonable to have a policy that capped the number of uh, at-risk foster kids you could have in one home at one time. So. A very important thing, but it wasn't the sexy political story of the week. So she was focused on policy and not on scoring political points. Uh, I want to switch gears to another Robin Williams movie title. This is One Hour Photo, and I bring this up because Alison Redford (laughs) is due to get her portrait hung up in the legislature alongside the other past premiers. And I just have to wonder if the Tory government might prefer to get that done at a one-hour Photoshop and just kind of stick that up on the <laughs> wall uh, rather than going through this whole ceremony that this, these uh, portrait unveilings have now become. Uh, Miriam, how soon might we see Redford's portrait? And do we have any idea of how that unveiling event might be handled? <laughs> <laughs> Awkwardly. <laughs> well, I guess to answer your first question... We don't really know how long it's going to take. These things can take a long time. Um, uh, The province has told us that she has chosen an artist for the portrait and that they're still in negotiations trying to to, to nail down that contract. And so until then, we're not really going to get a lot of details about that. But aside from that, yeah, this is a process that takes quite a long time from from once you select your your artist to once the painting is actually completed. And the Speaker of the House, Jean Zwazdeski, whose office is sort of involved in the 
the ceremony of it all, not really anything else, uh, said that it could it could be a year, it could be more because it's really up until up to the the process of the painting and, and how that's all done. In terms of the ceremony, we have no idea. When I spoke to to the speaker, he said that that's not even something they're considering at this time. I mean, we should also remember that not only is Redford going to get a portrait, but Hancock, our current premier, will also be offered a portrait once he steps down. And so uh, there is the potential that they could combo the unveiling ceremony. Oh, yes, that, that would make things marginally less awkward. Right, because then you would have you know, one for Hancock and one for Redford. Does Dave Hancock um, want that? I can't be against that without <laughs> well, They used over to it. be friends. Um, <laughs> well, he was her deputy premier. Yes. Um, and so, you know, maybe they'll do it that way where it's a two for one special and then maybe it won't be so awkward that Redford doesn't attend if she chooses not to attend in person. Paula, the, um, your column today did mention that the portrait discussion is really kind of a discussion about Redford's legacy in Alberta, our history, our political history in Alberta. And I do find it interesting how time can kind of change people's perceptions because we have had disgraced premiers who history has treated a little more kindly, right? Alexander Rutherford, our first premier, uh, who left office in disgrace. We've named stuff after him now, Lots right? Of stuff. We celebrate him now. But what about Allison Redford? Are we going to see an Allison Redford elementary school? Are we going to see an Allison Redford hospital? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we're not going to see Allison Alberta Redford. The building Alberta sign out front? Uh, yeah, we're not, and we're not going to see an Allison Redford International Airport anytime soon, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. But, uh, but what about that? What ab- where, where, is, where is she going to be in this legacy? Well, you know, it's really hard to know. I was thinking about this because one of the other disgraced premiers whose picture hangs in that gallery is uh, John Brownlee. And Brownlee left office uh, after... A, you know, a full-fledged sex scandal in which he was alleged to have seduced his 18-year-old secretary. And it was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the immediate end of the United Farmers of Alberta because uh, one of his cabinet ministers was, was uh, Reed was brought in to, to fill in for him. But that was the, that was effectively the end of the UFA. So he didn't only destroy his own career, he destroyed his party. Yet one of our most prominent public buildings downtown, the Brownlee Building, which is a, an, an important building near the courthouse, uh, is named for him. So it's hard to know. I mean, you can imagine that 50 years from now, people may have a fonder memory of Alison Redford, our first woman premier. I mean, right now it seems, you know, laughable to name something after her, but I can imagine. I don't know. There are, seem to be only a couple of premiers that get lots of stuff named after them, which is Klein and Lougheed. I mean, even Getty doesn't have much. And has anything been named after Stelmack? Well, I mean, I think they're both still alive. Well, but I don't think that stopped the Lougheed Park and no, that kind of thing. No, so, I mean, I just... La- I just Lougheed, Lougheed, yeah. yeah right. There are giants and there are not giants, so yeah. I'm different not sure. Aura, yeah, not different aura, not one of power. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, so... Yeah, there, there may not be much named after her either, just generally doesn't seem to happen except for a few big guys. But um, as the speaker pointed out, it, it is it is a tradition that's been afforded to every single premier in the province's history, even if it happened after the fact. And even if the party, as Paula pointed out in her column, had to raise money after the fact to pay for a portrait of their former premier to be hanging in the walls, I think... I think it would be sort of awkward 50 years from now to walk through that premier's portrait gallery and see, you know, one missing. We go to go from 13 to 15 or something. It, it right. would be terrible. What, what happened? Yeah. What happened it's to history. the female premier? We had, you know, I think it, that that on its own would present a whole other awkward set of circumstances. So, 
Yeah. Uh, well, last but not least is the movie Awakenings. And I bring this up in the context of Sheila's story today about a new report on air pollution in northeastern Alberta. Since it's a report produced by the government, maybe this is the one that finally wakes up the province that there may <laughs> be an environmental <laughs> issue in the oil sands area. <laughs> I hear from Paula's laugh. She doesn't think that's going to happen. Sheila, uh, what can you tell us about uh, what was in that report? Well, it is fascinating. It is the first report done under this Lower Athabasca Regional Plan. It actually has, under the plan, legal limits legal enforcement and it was touted as this is our new world-class monitoring and it's going to be followed by action and so far we don't have much action though we certainly have some interesting monitoring the air pollution levels at at least two stations near the upgraders hit level three it only goes to level four and that's when you hit the legal limit beyond which you will start damaging human health and ecology so we're already at level three there and at ten eight other stations they were at level two on the scale of four so according to the plan they must implement action action so far is Let's investigate further to pinpoint exactly where that's coming from. I guess which part of the stack, I'm not sure. but So environmentalists are saying this is pretty inadequate action and the credibility of this whole lower Athabasca regional plan way to control pollution is kind of at stake here. And the government says, oh, we're glad the triggers have told us there's a problem and that's what we need to know. It's given us plenty of warning. And the environmentalists say, if we just do more monitoring and investigating and we don't do action, how much further ahead we are? That's a very good question. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, we just have a little bit of time left. I, you're not going to let me say oh, it. Oh, you, 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 you want to say it. She's got to get okay. in on that. Okay. It, it, it's mm. a whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Sorry. Getting into the Robin Williams <laughs> spirit. Thank you very much. Uh, well, we just have a, a little bit of time left, a brief bit of time left for our regular feature, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we offer up a few selections of things our listeners may want to check out. So, Miriam, what have you got this week? Yesterday, I, along with a lot of other people, um, was really glued to Twitter yesterday and all of the reports that were coming out of Ferguson and the protests and the, the massive police response against uh, those people's right to to assemble peacefully and so there's been a growing discussion out of out of these events about the sort of growing militarization of police in America and um, I'm going to recommend a piece that was in the New York Times in June actually so long before the riots in Ferguson right and I uh, it's called war gear flows to police departments it's by Matt Ap Apuzzo, I'm going to say. Uh, it was in the New York Times on June 8th, 2014, this year, um, and basically talks about how, you know, in the wake of the, the war on terror after uh, America pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan, there was all of this surplus military gear, you know, anti-mine tanks and, you know, high-powered assault rifles and uh, body armor, planes even, that sort of thing. And so all of these started flowing to police departments. And it starts off actually with a um, town that has a population of about 25,000 people, has a crime rate lower than the national average, hadn't had a homicide in years, and their police department became basically a paramilitary organization with all of the, the gear that they'd received. And so it's really sparked an interesting discussion. So I really would recommend that one because as Paula says, it, it you know, this was something that was written before any of the events in Ferguson even happened. Right. Uh, Sheila, what have you got this week? You know, I'm going to uh, go outside the bounds a little bit 
back to school made me think of a uh, Human Rights Commission report that came out last spring. I covered a hearing of a teacher in the Frank a Francophone school that had been harassed by a student. Usually we hear the other way around, teachers sexually assaulting kids, etc. This teacher was accused of, in the end, accused of sex assault by the student, but that was just the, the end of months and months of harassment uh, on Facebook, on her um, e- email, and in actually in the classroom. They finally did move the student after many, many months of problems to a different Francophone school, and it turned out that the teacher's mother was the school secretary at that school, and the student began harassing the mother. I mean, this was just a huge problem. And so she, um, the teacher was in the end forced to leave that school, but she took the case of the Human Rights Commission that ruled in her favor and really vindicated her in many ways that the student, that the school had not taken enough action and to deal with the harassing student. And it just is a really interesting case that's a twist on what you often see in these cases where the teacher's the bad guy and the students are the victimized. And uh, this case, it was the other way around. All right. Well, we'll check that out. Um, My selection this week, we've been having a little fun with with some uh, Robin Williams history today, but uh, obviously his death has brought up some interesting questions about mental health and addiction and so on. Uh, And my selection is a report that was produced uh, earlier this year in February called the Gap Analysis of Public Mental Health and Addictions Programs in Alberta. It's done by a University of Alberta professor, Cam Wilde. And it gives a very good picture of what mental health services are available in the province and which gaps, uh, what gaps there are and, and where the province needs to go to, to uh, treat more people. So I thought that was an interesting read that, that people should check out. Paula, what about you? I have, I confess, uh, this is not light summer reading, but it's a really interesting and important book uh, just published by the University of Alberta Press called Aboriginal Populations, Social Demographic and Epidemiological Perspectives. And it's edited by Frank Travanto and Anatoly Romaniak of the University of Alberta. It's a fascinating collection of essays that looks at the uh, demographic and medical health of Aboriginal communities, not just in Canada, but around the world. So it has essays from the United States, from Australia, from uh, New Zealand, from looking at the Aboriginal population in, in the high Arctic of Russia. And for anybody who wants to understand the stresses on our healthcare system, our education system, our criminal justice system, our child welfare system. This is really essential reading. It should be on the desk, I think, of anybody who is caring about and passionate about social justice in our community, but also about the social determinants that make up a a better and stronger community. It's a fascinating read, and in the end, quite a hopeful one, because there's some really interesting essays about the resurgence of the Cree language, about the resurgence of Métis identity. It's not all uh, about problems. It's also about solutions. All right. I've seen you've been reading that on the journal patio for quite some yes, time. Yes, it's taken me a while to get through, but, uh, but I think it's going to be a reference I rely on a lot over the next few months. All right. Well, that's it for this week in the Press Gallery. I hope you've enjoyed our Robin Williams-inspired episode. Uh, a special thank you goes out to Sarah O'Donnell, who graciously allowed me to guest host for the past two weeks. A little preview for next week, Jim Prentice will be visiting the Journal's editorial board, and I'm sure there will be lots of interesting questions thrown his way. Alberta politics will probably never be as funny or as crazy as, say, Mrs. Doubtfire or Hutch Adams, but these days it's getting awfully close. Whatever fresh hilarity next week brings from under the dome, our panelists will be here again to give us their perspective in the press gallery.